Okay, we start off with Titus and uh, the Cretans. Titus, uh, Cretans it should be plural, Titus is to deal with the opposition to the gospel as taught, which the gospel accorded to the faith of Israel, accorded to the knowledge of the truth found in the gospel of godliness, that is of eternal life, proclaimed by Paul, the slave of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ. That opening paragraph is just so riddled with subordinate clauses and we as modern English readers don't know what a clause is, let alone a subordinate one. It's just why it's so difficult to read that one sentence that is there that stretches across four or five lines, whereas modern English is written just in terms of subject, verb, object, uh, often leaving out the verb, which is almost impossible to be a sentence. And I'm sorry for discussing this because I know most of you don't know what a verb is anymore. It's a doing or being, never mind, we'll just press on. Shall we? Titus is to do this work of teaching the truth, and rebuking, but also by appointing overseers who will also teach and rebuke. But chapter 2 is about what he is to be teaching. It concentrates on Titus's teaching. So verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. This is Titus's teaching to the obstinate, insubordinate Cretans. And therefore, it's a teaching for us, obstinate, insubordinate Australians. And it's also for us as those who would teach the word of God and rebuke those who are opposed to it. What he is to teach has to accord with sound doctrine. But as for you, Titus, in contrast to the false teachers at the end of chapter 1, who not only teach Jewish myths, but also teach human commands and deny the God they profess by their behaviour, as for you, Titus, you are to teach what accords, what is consistent, what conforms with sound doctrine. Uh, The word accords with here is not kata in the accusative, the problem that you have in the uh, chapter one. It's actually prepo. That is, what, what seems suitable for sound doctrine? What fits in with sound doctrine? What is fitting? There are some things that are fitting in the sense that they are distinctive to gospel doctrine. There are some things here that are fitting in that they are suitable for different groups of Christian people. And so that is why we're going to be looking at these two subjects. What is distinctive in doctrine and then in a little while what is distinctive to different groups. And you'll see there's four or so headings under one and five under the other. So let's turn to what is distinctive to doctrines. And here I have four things in mind. Firstly, the behaviour and character are distinctive to Christian teaching. You may not think it, but it's actually very Christian. Because we are still in a Christianised culture here in Australia, it becomes to us an obvious thing that Christianity or religion and morality go together. But it's not actually obvious to the ancient world. It's not obvious to Paul. See, in the taxi the other day, I raised the question of the driver's religion and he said his parents were Presbyterian. He was an old man, I figured, 
that is, he looked older than me, which means he's, you know, in his 50s. Uh, and I said, but what about you? Where, where do you say? And he said, oh, I'm a Buddhist. Buddhism is a lovely religion for Australians because it doesn't require justice or morality. It's about freeing yourself from any attachments so that nothing can hurt you. You won't have any pain or suffering because when you lose them, and lose them you will, you weren't attached to them anyway, so it doesn't matter. But that's not what he meant. What he meant by by being a Buddhist was he was really against all judgmentalism, against any concept of right and wrong, which is a little strange because later on he told me he was all right because he was a good person. Buddhists aren't interested in good persons. That's not Buddhism, that's Christian. You see, we... The ethics requires religion. But in New South Wales, where we still teach scriptures in schools, the atheists have taken on no longer teaching scripture, but teaching ethics as an alternative to scripture. But ethics is not an alternative to scripture. Ethics comes out of scripture. If you don't have scripture, you don't have religion, you don't have God. See, the atheists don't understand atheism. That's part of their problem. Without God, there is no meaning to life. Without any meaning to life, there's no morality. Without morality, there's no ethics. So an atheist course in ethics is a very short course. (laughs) Certainly, there's nothing in atheism like the binary morality of good and bad, just and unjust, uh, evil and righteous. That kind of binary morality comes from Christianity, has spread worldwide, And now the atheists are trying to grab hold of the morality without grabbing hold of God. But you can't. It doesn't work that way. I I was in philosophy one course when I first became chaplain at New South Wales University. I did a course in philosophy just to acquaint myself to New South Wales University. And the lecturer brought the house down. He said, I can solve the problem of sin. It's very simple. If you want to get rid of sin, there's just one thing you need to do. Get rid of God. Without God, there is no sin. Everybody cheered, everyone laughed. He was absolutely right. Without God, there is no sin. Because there's no concept of right and wrong. There's no concept of, of, of righteousness or justice or truth. He didn't tell you there's no concept of love, faith, justice, truth. He just told you there's no sin. He, he's right, logically. He just didn't actually follow through and let the troops know the other alternatives as well. So, first thing is the fact that you have behaviour that is fitting with sound doctrine is itself a very Christian understanding, a very Christian sound doctrine. Secondly, in this section in Titus 2, there's behaviour that is described as good. Verse 2, the older women are teach women what, what is good. Uh, it's kalos, kalos didaskalos. Uh, likewise, they're to teach what in verse 5 is, is kind, although, again, that's a word agathos, which is good. You've got to have good faith in verse 10, again, agathos, and you've got to talk about good works in verse 7, which is kalos. Now, good is always a very difficult word in philosophical debate because it requires a whole philosophy, a whole worldview to place it in the context of any meaning. Without a philosophical system, the word good itself is an empty word. It doesn't mean much more than I like. Uh, It's just a kind of an expression uh, of, of, of no particular meaning. 
But for Bible believers, that's, that's not a problem at all because we know that whatever pleases God is good and whatever displeases him is evil. Uh, Romans 14.23 says, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. When humans ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we became our own arbiters of good and evil. And so we lost any sense of objective good and evil. It's now make your own story, make up your own idea, make up your own philosophy. There is no good, there is no evil, there's just what I like or what I don't like. But when you know God is the ruler of the world, what he likes, what he doesn't like, that is what good and evil is about. What is being described in verses 1 to 10 is not Paul's opinion and it's not just culturally appropriate. It's not limited to Crete and the first century. What is being described in verses 1 to 10 is what is good. In an absolute sense of the world ruled by the God and creator of the universe. What is good is being taught and practiced by those who seek to please God in every age, in every culture, in every land. Thirdly, and almost contrary to what I've just said, Paul wants Titus to teach behaviour that will bring no discredit but rather honour upon the name of Christ and the word of God. You see it in verse 5, that the word of God will not be reviled. Or in verse 8, speech that cannot be condemned, an opponent may be put to shame, have nothing evil to say about us. Or in verse 10, so that in everything, the the doctrine of God may be adorned. Now, this attitude of making sure that what we do is above reproach and brings honour to the gospel and is not in any way to be condemned or scorned, that what we do is an attitude of public relations, which, if it's detached from what is good, creates a royal commissions into pedophilia in institutional churches, for it creates the kind of pedophile in the denominations, that if you are more concerned about your public opinion, the public relations, than you are about what is good then you will cover up evil and corruption as the Roman Catholic Church has found itself. Doing what is good, what is right, what is just is what will bring good credit and remove bad credit from the gospel and from Christians and from the church. But the public relations view of life, always worried about the media's opinion of us, leads to hiding, to deceit, to dissembling and ultimately to corruption. And it will, in the long run, be found out. It's not that we're unconcerned about opinions. I've just given you a double negative there. Uh, We are concerned about our public image, but image is enhanced by doing the right thing. Image is a consequence of doing the right thing. It's not the purpose of what we do. It's a secondary motivation, not the primary motivation. I do what is good, and that will bring credit upon the name of the Lord Jesus. 
rather than I seek to do that which will bring credit on the name of the Lord Jesus and hide that which would bring discredit on the name of the Lord Jesus because that is the way of corruption. Fourthly, the ethics of the New Testament is in several times expressed as here in the terms of a household codes. Uh, You'll find it in Colossians, you'll find it in Ephesians, for example. That is, you address different groups with different moral behavioural requirements. At this point, remember last night's quick discussion that I gave you on generalisations and stereotypes. And add to that communication difficulties that we have created by the non-Christian world we're entering into, where language of political correctness, of inclusiveness, of uh, victimisation, of offensive language, of uh, hate speech, all of which has been created in our culture in the last uh, 50 years as a result of our culture moving away from a Christian normality. Uh, We didn't have these problems of communication when I was a boy. We have these problems of communication now that I've become an old man and you're going to have to live with this for the next 40 or 50 years. I suspect I won't. But these problems that have come have come out of our movement away from living under the word because the word no longer means anything in an atheistic world. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. See, we live, in a, we live in a Christian culture where words actually matter and have content, meaning and significance. Do away with God and you do away with meaning and significance and then you do away with language and then words are just political ways of manoeuvring people and then taking offence and being a victim and manipulating is the nature and the use of words. And that's how the world is using words. That's what the media is doing. That's what, to their annoyance, Mr Trump is doing. Uh, Mr Trump has learnt what the media do, and he's doing it to the media. He's driving them mad, but he's just doing what they've been taught to do. I'm not saying I'm for Mr Trump. I'm not saying, I'm not saying I'm against Mr Trump. I'm just pointing out he's clever. Uh, he might be very unintelligent, but he's clever because he's doing the very thing the non-Christian world believes, that is, words don't have any meaning. That's why you can't hold him to his promise because you don't make promises that have meanings and you certainly don't keep them because faithfulness is unimportant to the world, you see. Whereas we are living in a different bubble. We are living in a Christian bubble where words actually have meaning and significance. And so it's really difficult to make generalisations in the age of inclusiveness and victimisation and offensive language and hate speech. All of which means we need to take care then not to distract people from our message by the way we say it. There are two contrasting distractions here. One is unnecessary and thoughtless offensiveness. The other distraction, though, is obscure circumlocutory weasel words that fail to make our message clear. I'm afraid because we're we're afraid of causing offence we are now speaking in ways that the non-Christian cannot understand us because it is so hedged around with political correctness, with the kinds of right buzzwords that it's not actually saying anything that would call upon the nation to repent. So we're going to generalise about groups in this passage. How can we generalise about groups? Aren't people people? Aren't humans all the same? Aren't we all created in God's image? Aren't we all fallen under Adam's sin? Yes, all that's true. 
But young people and old people are not the same. And men and women are not the same. That's a generalisation, I know. There are stere- that you can't push it to stereotypes. This old man is a younger mind than this young woman. I was once accused by a person. Uh, I'd spoken at a conference in England and this man said in the Thanksgiving of Philip, and please don't do those, please don't do those, uh, at the end of the conference, this man got up and said, Philip is the oldest angry young man I've ever heard. I'm still trying to work out whether that was a compliment or an insult. I'm never sure. You see, you can't turn the generalisations into stereotypes. That's a mistake. Well, you can, and that's a mistake. But you can't then rule out generalisations because there are such things as stereotypes because it is true. People are different. Men and women are not the same. And so look at the advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Very important point in Christian ministry. Do not rebuke an older man. I love that verse. Do not rebuke an older... I love it more and more, actually. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. That is, you do not just people as people. You treat them in their differences in relationship with you. If they're older than you, you respect them and look up to them. If they're younger than you, you don't look down to them. You treat them as colleagues. If they're, if they're fathers, if they're mothers, they're different. It is a different role. It's a different function. It's a different kind of person that you're dealing with. And notice, with sisters, with absolute purity. That doesn't mean you don't treat younger men with absolute purity or older men with absolute... or older women with absolute purity. But there is a problem that you have in ministry, my brothers, when you're dealing with younger sisters, the younger women. And there is a problem that you need to address and you need to be conscious of, very serious consciousness of this matter. And so many men have fallen because they haven't taken seriously that younger women are different to older women in our concern for absolute purity. And they fall prey to a very stupidity of our old sinful nature. You see, we don't treat people all the same. Vice President Pence, who professes to be Christian, Uh, was attacked for following the Billy Graham rule. The Billy Graham rule being that you never are in a room with any woman by yourself other than your wife. And so you go to a hotel, you get make sure the room doesn't have a woman there just by yourself. So he wouldn't talk to individual women by himself, wouldn't go out with a meal with them. And the women complained bitterly that this prevented them from getting ahead in life because they didn't have private access to the vice president. But of course, all that took place before the Me Too movement. Now, I think most people agree with Vice President Pence's view that old powerful men cannot be left alone in a room with a young woman who is seeking great power and authority and lobbying the man. The Me Too movement, I think, has, you see, last week, uh, as a result of Lee Sales, you know Lee Sales is on the 7.30, which is the, one of the ABC shows that I purposely avoid watching. Um, it's your ABC, it's not mine. Um, <laughs> Lee Sales took objection to being kissed at a, in a meeting uh, uh, by a man. Uh, he greeted her with a kiss and she ticked him off in front of a couple of hundred, a couple of hundred people. 
this has caused a debate within the media fraternity and Prue Goward wrote in our Sydney Morning Herald, uh, Prue Goward used to be the sex discriminator, discrimination commissioner in uh, 2001 to 7 uh, and then she went on in New South Wales to become the Minister for Women's Affairs. She wrote of men not initiating greeting. Uh, men mustn't kiss a woman's cheek or even handshake until the woman has offered that this is what she wants. It's only women who can initiate the greeting intimacy. I laughed because that's exactly what my mother taught me in the 1950s. But of course we mustn't do anything from the 1950s. I mean the 1950s are death, aren't they? So it couldn't be right to go back to the 1950s, although actually we're just told the other day we should. That is, a man does not hold his hand out to shake the hand of a woman. He waits for the woman to hold her hand out. If she doesn't, he doesn't. If she does, he does. And likewise, he doesn't kiss the cheek unless the cheek is offered to be kissed. Uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, men and women are different. Uh, I'm not allowed to offer my kiss, my cheek for kissing, because uh, I'm not a woman. But the women here, sisters, you can, because... Uh, who makes up these rules? Nobody, because it's just plain, this is the way the world is. And of course, we have the TERFs, the transgender exclusionary radical feminists, uh, who object to transgender women playing women's sport or transgender women going into women's toilets because they want to say, well, actually, uh, the, I accept that they're transgender, but I don't accept that they're the same as... And so a famous uh, lesbian tennis player who objected greatly to these men who now claim to be women playing in the tennis circuit against women because it's not fair, because men and women are different. Finally, even feminists are working out men and women are not the same. (laughs) What a shock. (laughs) So what is the teaching that is about the distinctive to each group that we have here? Well, firstly, older men. Older men are to be sober. Uh, sober. It, it, minded is being added in by the translation. We're to be sober. We're not to be drunk. Um, that is not our character. Uh, remember the advice of uh, King Lemuel's mother in Proverbs 31, the bit of Proverbs 31 people don't read. The first part, Lemuel's mother, King, he told, she, she told him that strong drink is not for kings and not for rulers. It's for people who are in pain and suffering to help them cope with their pain and suffering. But it's not for kings and rulers because it distorts your judgments and your perceptions. Older men are to be sober. They're to be dignified. That is worthy of respect, serious, noble. Brothers, you've got to not be Peter Pan. As you grow old in ministry, you've got to grow old. Do not try and be Peter Pan. For those of us working in university ministries, very important because the congregation is always the same age, 18 to 21. As you get old into your 30s, into your 40s, into your 50s, they're still 18 to 21. And if you play being 18 to 21 when you're 50, you look stupid. And no one takes you seriously. It's like the woman who's, 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 who's mutton dressed up as lamb. It just is an awful image that comes across one. You've got to be dignified. You've got to be self-controlled. Now, this is a key word, sophron. It means controlled by wisdom, of which I spoke last night. It comes up frequently in 1 and 2 Timothy and in Titus. And sound, that is healthy, is the word in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
There's three values for you, brothers, to be working at. Faith, love and steadfastness is what we must be. Uh, Trust, trustworthiness. You've got to be reliable. You've got to be a trustworthy person. And you've got to grow in your love, in your sacrificial concern for other people and in your stability. The the elders create stability. It's very important. When a couple of years ago, Sir Marcus Lone died, it was very interesting because he was a great one in my youth. The people who spoke of him... They all spoke of a great tree has fallen in the forest. There was something stable about him. There was something rock-like about him. And his rock-like stability gave strength and protection to all of us. That's what the older man must be like. Young men do from time to time stupid things. The the brain of of a male is not actually fully formed until they're 25 which is why, uh, we, why we pay higher insurance and it's why we put them in armies and shove them, tell them to get out of trenches and run towards the Germans and all kinds of things because their brains are not attached properly. And so you see young men doing stupid things. But when you see an old man doing stupid things, it's not because his brain's not attached properly, it's because he is stupid. Right? Uh, to do stupid things when you're young, well, that's just being young. But to do stupid things when you're old, that's being stupid. And that's much, much worse. Here, my brothers, is the direction that your life must move to. This is a passage to study for your future. This is how you are to seek to develop your character. Secondly, older women. Notice likewise, uh, because there isn't, there isn't much in the old man list that, you wouldn't want, that you'd want to say, well, no, old women mustn't be sound in faith, love and steadfast. Many other things are likewise, but it's also especially because she's to be self-controlled. She's to live under wisdom too. Uh, She's to be reverent in her behaviour. But that reverence in her behaviour is spelt out in terms of not slanderers or not slaves to much wine. There are two problems that go with age with uh, women. Now, I've never really done a close study of it, but in the blocks of units I've lived in, both of the problems I've seen with the older women living alone. Uh, that's not much of a sample, I know, but it's just interesting to the problem on my own doorstep that the older women around the units are the, are the gossips and slanderers and they are the tipplers. Uh, they really, the amount of grog that sits in the garbage dins at my block of units is astonishing and a lot of it comes from the same units. But the older women are given something to do here, which is even much better. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. It's not that older that women are not to teach. They are to teach, but they're to teach what is good. And their teaching is to train younger women in what is to be, and again the word comes, wise. So frenizo. They're to teach younger women to be ruled and governed by wisdom. That is how the Christian woman is to live. See, in the famous, or is it infamous, passage in 1 Timothy 2, I notice that most people miss the importance of women learning. Women learning in order to rule their own lives. In order to rule their own lives with, by wisdom. By, this is the word self-control. It's wisdom. Uh, Come to us, 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. I've highlighted some things here. Women should adorn themselves. 
Notice, men don't make how women should adorn. Christian women need to work out how to adorn themselves. Women must choose. How could a woman choose to adorn herself? Well, she's got to adorn herself in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. That word self-control, it's wisdom there. She must be wise in the choices of how she presents herself to the world. For clothing is not just kind of keeping us warm, although we've needed it up here, haven't we? It's not just keeping warm, it's expressing yourself, isn't it? Women's fashion is all about self-expression, how you communicate and tell the world who you are. Well, you, you do that by wisdom, not braided hair, gold pearls, costly attire. That wouldn't be very wise for a Christian woman. But with what is proper, there the word is fitting. What is fitting, it's our word from Titus 2, what is fitting for women who profess... Godliness, again, the word we keep coming across. Well, what's fitting for a woman who professes godliness? Good works. Let your attire, my sisters, be, let your expression to the world, let the world see you as full of good works rather than, oh, the little blonde bimbo in the fifth row. Oh, I'm sorry, make sure there isn't any. Um, but... What is it that they? What is it you want people to say about you? Ah, oh, she's a she's a lovely woman. She does all these things. That's what you want them to say about you. You see, and how do you do that? Well, you do it by making the choices yourself in life based on wisdom. And how can you do that? Because you've got to learn. And the principal verb of verse eleven is not about teaching. It's learning. It's not about quietness and submissiveness. It's about learning. And so at the end of that paragraph, it says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Again, this ruled by wisdom is how you must. So the older women are to train the younger women in this living by wisdom way of life. The good in which the older women are to teach the younger women. So we go back to the outline there. It's spelled out in verses 4 to 5. To love their husbands and their children. There'd be philanderous and philotechnus. I love that women are to be philanderers in the Bible. Um, it's strange to some ears. You've got to teach them to love their husbands. You've got to teach them to love their children. Well, the people who find it strange are people who don't know much about husbands because some husbands are not very lovable. Uh, many husbands are not very lovable. And to, older women need to help younger women to know how to love the sinful man they're married to. And loving children, the maternal instinct is not always there and overwhelming. And there are some children that are really hard, actually, to love and to care for, especially as they develop their own personalities. And so the older women to help the younger women in the very profound domestic responsibility of relationships for the family home really revolves around the mother, doesn't it, and the wife. Still, it's not the command to love in the sense of Christ loved his bride, laying down her life for him. It's love in another sense. You see, we have love and marriage connected together in our society. Uh, we've done that since the mid-20th century, thanks to Hollywood. But the Bible has faith and marriage connected together. It's not love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. It's faith and marriage go together. And I won't quote that 1940s song. Marriage vows today have become interchangeable. Bill, do you love Mary? Mary, do you love Bill? 
But really, the marriage vows should be different. Bill, will you husband Mary? Mary, will you submit to Bill? Two different things you're being asked to do. Without understanding the Bible, we've just taken on the non-Christian world. Love. Marriage vows are interchangeable. What a man promises a woman is exactly what a woman promises a man. And therefore, well, why not have a man promise it to a man and a woman promise it to a woman? Because we're just marrying two persons. We're not marrying a man and a woman. We're marrying two beings, two humans, two persons. So what's wrong with same-sex marriage? We shot ourselves in the foot 40 years ago, friends, when we took on feminism. That's when we shot ourselves in the foot. Because we haven't understood there's a difference between men and women like the Bible spells out for us. Other training is straightforwardly Christian. She's to be pure, uh, to be kind, again the word is good, to be self-controlled, again that word of living under wisdom. But then there's the controversial ones for today, working at home and submissive to their own husbands. Our problems here are our problems, nothing problem in the text. There's nothing problem with God's view. That's what is good. Our problem is we don't like God's view of what is good. See, what are our problems? We've got several issues that create the problem for us. There's no problems much in the translation. The words are straightforward, kind of. Uh, Oikagus is, is a, a work at home, busy at home. Uh, but our problem lies in the fact that we have a social perspective of housewife that is different to the Bible's view. That is, the division of labour in the 1900s to 1970s led to a kind of pattern of housewife. But you read the division of labour in Proverbs 31. She was a businesswoman. She did all kinds of things outside the house as well as running the house. In fact, she does the business outside the house in order to run the house better. She still has an orientation towards the home. But there is the image we have, rather than the 1950s housewife. The social perspective, we also have a problem because we're going through an age of terrific social change with working women, dual-income families, uh, the problems of home ownership, etc., which has put us all in a stew as to how you have work-life balance kind of uh, issues that people are talking about as if work is not part of life. And then we have the changing value, and this is a really important one for Christians to grasp hold of, the changing values of work versus family. That whereas the Bible sees family as really important and work is there in order to enable the family to exist, our society sees work is really important and family is what produces more workers into our community. That shift, that sellout that we've had to the commercial world is a very serious commercial is a very serious problem, which gives us problem then with the idea of working at home. And value put into that then is the materialistic valuation of the importance of career. That in your career you find your self-esteem, your significance, your fulfillment, rather than in your relationship with God and your relationship with other people, especially your own family. So it's more important that you're a CEO of a company than that you care for your spouse and your children. That inversion of values then creates big problems for us when we come to a verse like this. And so there is the, our problem is our problem, not the text. The text is absolutely straightforward as to what's good. On the submissive to their own husband issues, we've imbibed the egalitarian confusion of being equal with being the same. 
They're, they're two different things. And we've also confused equal, equality of outcomes with equality of opportunities. And we've made equality the ultimate value of social relationships, which is, I don't believe in the Bible anywhere, uh, or equality as a desirable or useful pursuit. We've also imbibed the whole feminist false diagnosis of power and authority, confusing those two things, which are not the same at all, seeing power inequality as itself an evil, which is a complete nonsense, power inequality is inevitable and is just normal, seeing patriarchy as the evil, which is again terribly hard for Christians because God is our father, he is the father from whom all fatherhood is named. How you can be anti-patriarchal and a Christian defies all logic, sense and sanity. And the, the power as connected to corruption, power and corruption are not connected as people. Just because you're powerful doesn't mean you're corrupt. It's because you're a son of Adam that you're corrupt. All your power does is enables you to expend it. And we, conf- we have massive confusions. And then we approach the Bible in its clarity telling us what to do and say we don't like it because it doesn't fit in with our confusions. Submission is an absolute normal activity of human life which is essential for any society to function. We submit when we have music, for example. The musician submitted to the director of the music group. The the musician submitted to the music. They didn't all decide to play whatever notes they wanted in whatever key they wanted. And then we all submitted to them, singing along with them the song that they told us to sing and the way they conducted it for us to sing. If you don't believe me, let's everybody choose their own song and let's have a go and see the, the, the beauty of the... Submission is a normal social activity. It is not an evil. I submit to people, I've got nothing to do with they're better than me, more powerful than me. I see a policeman. Have you noticed how young policemen are these days? I see a policeman, you know, he's a whippersnapper. I've got grandchildren older than him. He tells me to stop and I do. Because he has an authority to tell me. He's not more intelligent than me, more educated than me, more wise than me. He's not even more good looking than me. But I will still submit to him. Submission is a normal activity. Get over it. Let's turn our attention to the younger men. Oh no, I've got to move much faster here. The younger men in verses 6 to 8. Again, we must commence with likewise. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching... Notice it assumes that you're going to teach young men. You're not an elder, but you're still a teacher. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. You'll find this is the same advice you get in 1 Timothy 4. Don't let anyone look down upon you because of your youth, but show them an example of speech, conduct, love, faithfulness, purity. If you're going to be a teacher, you need to grow up early. You need to move to the pattern of the older man straight away. Finally, in the household, we come to slaves. Uh, it's not bond servants, it, it, it's, it's slaves. We practice slavery in Australia today, uh, and it's right that we do. Slavery is not ownership, slavery is restricting freedom. And we practice slavery, we just don't call it that. Uh, Mind you, our nation, especially this part, not South Australia, this part was built on slavery, only we called it convicts. The practice of slavery is debtors. We make them bankrupts. We restrict their freedom. Criminals, we put them in prison. 
terrorists. We lock them up in prison, throw the key away. Contract workers, you can come and do a university course, but you've got to now spend 10 years working for us or five years working for us. That is bonded service. That is slavery. We, we, it, there's nothing wrong with it itself. Slavery is itself not wrong. It depends on the abuse of slavery, which in the African slave trade, that was worse than abuse. That was absolutely appalling. If you are in a contract situation, then you must be submissive to whoever your master is in that contract. And so the argument, we don't want slaves to be running free. They've got to fulfil their requirements. Let me try and show you an illustration of it. There's a bloke I knew who went through New South Wales University years ago on a government contract from overseas, which had a 10-year contract. He he was converted here. He was very keen to go into full-time Christian ministry. But he was contracted to the government for 10 years. He went home and he worked for them for 10 years. And when the 10th year was up, he came back to Moore College, trained here, and he's now gone back to his home country as a minister of the gospel. He was in slavery. He fulfilled his obligations. That is what he should have done. That is what he did. Very commendable. Okay. This is the content. But you know, my problem with my outline is I've come now to the most important bit and I've run out of time. See, why is all this fitting? Because, 4 verse 11, because the grace of God has appeared. That's why it's fitting. The grace has appeared and it is doing something. It is training us. Our translation is wrong at this point. Let me try and show it to you. Uh, I'm nicking over to the next outline where Darby's translation comes up. If we can do that quickly. Skipping next one. There we go. You see, the grace of God, which carries with it salvation for all men, has appeared, teaching us that, having denied ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should now live soberly, justly, piously in the present course of things, awaiting the blessed hope and appearing of the, go- of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grace doesn't train us to repent. Grace doesn't train us and teach us to become Christians. But having become Christians, grace now teaches and trains us in how to live. Very important distinction made at this point, friends. We'll see it again in chapter 3 tomorrow. That grace's training is not about the past. It's something that we have already done. We've already renounced godlessness and worldly lusts. When we denied ourselves, took up the cross and followed him, when we were baptised with him, uh, when we were buried with him in baptism. But now that you have repented, grace is training you to live in the present life personally, that is by sober self-control, socially, that is by being just and righteous in your relationships and religiously, that is pious by being godly, God-oriented in your whole life. As we await for the future, that is the return of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And yes, this is a verse where God is, Jesus is called God, our God and Saviour, according to the Granville Sharp rule, if you remember your Greek. If you don't, you should. So... Then comes the summary verse in verse 14. Who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify not sin from lawlessness. We were outlaws, not just lawbreakers, outlaws, lawless. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The word actually is zealots. Jesus voluntarily gave himself up to redeem us from lawlessness, from outlaws. We, became, we were godless, but he purified, he cleansed a people for himself. Why? Because he wanted his own people who would be, notice what we're called, zealots for good works, extremists. If you're not an extremist, you're not a Christian. You've got to be a zealot. But our extremism, our zeal, is to do good. That's what Jesus has redeemed us to do. And therefore, this is the teaching that befits sound doctrine. That is, Christ redeems people, young and old, male and female, slave and free, to live now personally self-controlled wise lives, wise governed lives, socially, justly and fairly in all our relationships with people and religiously committed to God, accepting the gospel of godliness as zealots for good works, passionate, extremists, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, as Jesus calls it. For only extremists, my brothers and sisters, change the world. Martin Luther King was an extremist. He changed the world. Extremists are the people who change the world. That's why governments always hate extremism. That is why the one thing you're not allowed to be in Australia is an extremist because Australia is the new religion of Australia. And the last thing we want is extremists because they won't, they won't sit still. They won't do what they're supposed to do. Anyone who's changed the world in history was an extremist. It's the character of them. You want to change Australia for the gospel of Jesus, you've got to be an extremist. But our extremism is passion for doing what is good. That is our extremism. So notice how in verse 16, Titus is to declare, exhort, rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard him. My brothers and sisters, do you hear what we're to be like? Do you hear what we are to teach? Well, don't pull your punches with yourself or with your hearers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in his death and resurrection, your grace appeared in this world. And in that gospel message that was taken to the world, especially by the Apostle Paul, your grace of forgiveness and mercy reached to us all, young and old, men and women, slaves and free. We thank you, Father, for this grace. We thank you that by it we have been saved. And now, Father, we thank you that it also now trains us to live for you, to live for your son as his people, zealots for good works, personally and socially and in relationship with you, that we would live in this world differently, in holiness. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.